Hello, everyone, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Scott Smithson, and I'm your host for the, the latest issue, iteration of the Making Sense of Geopolitics podcast with Lycan. Today, we are honored and privileged to have with us Mr. John Fowler. John is the co-founder and CEO of Intrigue Media, which John's going to talk to us about here in a few minutes, a digital media startup that's on a mission to make understanding the world easier and more enjoyable. Or as I like to see when I went to John's website, they take their work serious, but not themselves not seriously. John is a former Australian diplomat who has served for over five years in China with stations in both Beijing and Shanghai. He began his career as an international lawyer in Australia and has experience working on a multitude of major international cases to include when Australia took Japan to the International Court of Justice over whaling issues. John possesses numerous degrees to, to include degrees in economics and law as well as an MBA from the London Business School, or LBS, for those of us who know the lexicon. John, thank you so much for joining us today, and welcome to the Geopolitics of Commodities. Thanks, Scott. It's a, it's a privilege to be here. I'm excited for the conversation. It's always good to, to get together and just shoot the breeze about uh, what's going on in the world. Excellent, excellent. Oh, I, definitely so. You know, John, before we kind of get uh, get started and kind of diving into all the challenges of the world right now, particularly a consequential year, as we'll discuss heavily with major elections, crises that we know about, ones that may happen, I just wanted to offer our, our listeners an opportunity to understand a little bit more about international intrigue. As we all know, the last few years, there's just been in a wash of geopolitical commentators, research articles, podcast series, where everyone wants to kind of market themselves as the next Henry Kissinger, but but obviously <laughs> fall short of those type of things, and really talk more about international affairs when they should be really talking about geopolitics. And I know international intrigue kind of really gets the, the, the division and the difference there. So John, if you don't mind, just before we kind of get uh, dive into some of the more substantive issues. Just talk to us a little bit about what you and your colleagues uh, have with international intrigue um, and kind of and, and where your vision is for it going forward. Yeah. So um, you met, well, I mean, you mentioned I was, I was a, a former Australian diplomat. I actually left that to go and do my MBA at the London Business School in uh, 2019, um, a couple of months before the pandemic hit. So it was a, it was a fun, a fun environment to do a, a master's in, but um what I noticed sitting with, you know, incredibly smart colleagues during that MBA in London from around the world was just that there was this, there wasn't a great um, understanding of geopolitics, of how it impacts the world. And, uh, you know, these folks were going to be business leaders in, in the near future. They're going to lead their companies, industries, consultancies, all this kind of stuff. And there was a real lack of understanding about how the world was changing and what it was going to mean for, for, for the world. Um, you know, there's two ways you can approach that realization one is to say oh well go and read a book you know go and educate yourself on geopolitics the other is to still ask why these incredibly smart driven people didn't understand it and and the kind of idea that i had at the time with my co-founder helen who um is also a former australian diplomat was just that there was nowhere they could go to get the the kind of high level but smart engaging, thoughtful, but enjoyable takes on what was going on in the world. You, you know, the kind of idea that it's not going to be their careers. It's not going to be their jobs. They're not going to become experts in, in Middle East geopolitics and Saudi Arabian foreign policy and all that kind of stuff. But they do need to know what's going on there and what it might mean for their, their niche. So we, we started a, a newsletter. Um, it got a lot of sort of organic 
growth very quickly with us just doing it weekly. Uh, I finished my MBA and I thought, well, why not give it a shot to make it a full-time newsletter? And from that, we've we've kind of grown into a, a media company that still sticks to that mission of making the world enjoyable to understand. Um, but we kind of we will do podcasts and events and those kinds of things now. That's great, John. No, and, and it's exciting to read. And we're going to get into some of the content that you've generated um, in the discussion. And, and for our listeners, well, well John uh, mentioned that he's originally from Australia. His company, an international intrigue, really has a global footprint. But I would like, because of the fact that maybe our um, our listeners may not always have this opportunity, I'd, I'd welcome kind of, and this is a broad question, we can take it however you would like. But one of the things that that, that we like to do in our discussions, either at Lycan or what I do with clients, what I do with students, is we talk about how do we characterize the international environment, both from a business, a security and political sense. So if you if you don't mind, could you just take just a few minutes and just kind of help us about how do you characterize what's happening in the world? Where have we been? Where? Why is this such a consequential moment? And, and where do you kind of see things kind of portending in the very, very near term? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it, it kind of depends on how far back you want to go, but I think it's probably useful to sort of characterize the post-Cold War period as unipolar. It's a wonky word, but just that idea that you know, the U.S. kind of ran things. The There was a real belief in, I think, a lot of places that uh, the world was going to liberalize. China was liberalizing. Russia was probably going to liberalize. Um, some of the other kind of big players around the world were at least not causing problems. Africa was the great, the great sort of unknown. There was so much potential, but if we could just liberalize them, it, it could really move us into that, you know, that famous and often misquoted um, phrase of Fukuyama's The End of History. But it, there was that sense, right? Um, and I think starting with probably a, around the time I went to China as a diplomat, which was 2015, that, that's kind of where I put a pin in a vibe change <laughs> in how the world was starting to go. Xi Jinping gets his second term um, and becomes a lot more assertive, a lot more wants to remake the world order in, in, in something that's more favorable to China. And then obviously we have the pandemic, which really just shook up the snow globe, I think. Um, and then we get to where we are now, which is your question. And I think the best way to describe it is fragmented uh, or fragmenting maybe um, on the way to being a lot more fragmented. Um, I think folks throw around the world uh, the word multipolar. It's a little bit confusing, but the idea that there's just going to be more uh, poles of power around the world um, and, 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 and something I've been toying around with, um, kind of just privately in thinking about this is it's kind of almost like the decision horizon, the time that countries are making decision about what's then what's in their national interest has kind of shrunk back. So, you know, previously, maybe in like the nineties and early two thousands, a country might be willing to do something in the immediate term for the expected payoff in the future of being part of the WTO or, you know, the U S led world order. It feels to me that countries are less likely to do that. They're more saying, okay, but we're making decisions for the now or for the, the near to medium term. Uh, and we want to see that payoff a lot quicker because we don't think there's as much certainty in the world as there was. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I think, I feel like that's how I would characterize the world a little more uncertain. Yeah, no, that's great, John. And, it, and it's interesting because on the one hand, we have this reaction of, as you said, countries and groups of countries more and more hedging because of undetermined futures, but at the same time, the world facing 
tra- uh, challenges that are inter- inherently transnational. So that the times in which we, you know, we need truly kind of collective action responses is also the time when that's the least favored approach. Yeah, it's 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 a real um, not a paradox, but it's a it's a real sort of problem, isn't it? That you sit there and go, as the world's globalizing, when you know, we we talk about globalizing in sort of the 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 wonky geopolitical sense, but I'm talking about it in the reality, in the sense that technology is global, travel is global, people have friends around the world, work is global. We see that the world's kind of global order is coming back to regional or even national. Uh, and that tension, I think, is something, particularly in the tech context. I mean, you're going to see that play out. I've been kind of saying for a, a few years now that I think that you're going to see far more internets and far more tech environments become splintered off as well. So it's um, it's it's certainly, I, I think we're right in the start of what is going to be a huge period of change. Yeah, no, indeed. And, and, uh, and, and you know, we're also kind of seeing this too, from an investment perspective of kind of seeing this long-term decoupling in certain markets right. and an increase in others. And, and it's just fascinating to see this delicate dance between political decisions and now financial and private sector decisions. Uh, going right. Forward. And of course, decoupling is kind of a word that's been thrown around a lot. I think the EU has kind of moved to de-risking, which I think is a better yes. word because decoupling just isn't possible, right? Like, I mean, you've just said it there. It's You're thinking about investors, you're thinking about consumers, you're thinking about po- politicians. And, and if to decouple is just not feasible across those three things. So I think de-risking is a good way to think about it in the sense of like, okay, well, you talked about, you know, supply chains and these kinds of things. Well, let's just let's just be a bit more resilient and realizing that there is risk, but um, we need to be a little less risky with it. But yeah, fascinating. No, absolutely. Well, well, John, that was great. If I could, if we could just shift our, the conversation for a little bit, and uh, and, and John, we'll, I'll try to clean up my. I don't know if it's one of our connections. It's things are a little bit. I've got a little bit of a lag, so my apologies. Um, but if I can just shift our conversation just a bit, you know, I think one, I think all countries are trying are, are at this kind of crossroads of how do we ma- mitigate and navigate these different priorities, particularly when it comes to the balance between security and economic prosperity. And in, in, in all countries do this, but I think many of them are, are really kind of fine tuning this approach. If you could, for, for, our, our, uh, for our listeners, how do you see uh, your native country? How do you see Australia kind of in this context? Uh, in, in not just now, but, but really kind of in manifest of, uh, you know, the last few administrations, the current prime minister, um, we'll just kind of welcome your thoughts as to how Australia kind of is conceptualizing its role and how it's seeking to maximize opportunities, but also de-risk in this in this new 21st century paradigm. Yeah, I think you framed Australia's core conundrum really well, that that trade-off between prosperity and security. Um, if you think of it, it almost like a, a pendulum swinging between you know, I don't think it is a zero-sum game between those two things, but maybe a pendulum where you kind of have to err on one side or the other. I think the way to describe Australia's place in the world or the way we see ourselves in the world has been fairly, the pendulum's been fairly uh, fairly kind of robustly on the side of prosperity. You know, I, I, again, up until that period that I, I put the, the, the marker in before, about 2015, we were 
really just kind of trying to make hay while the sun shines. You know, we were digging up iron ore, selling it to China, you know, as much as they could buy, we ha- we would sell and we were looking for other places to sell it to. So it was really just an idea of we can get really rich by not doing too much. Um, and I think that has shifted over the last, let's call it a decade, um, towards arguably towards security, a bit of an overreaction um, in the late sort of 2017, 18, 19 period. Um, and I guess the challenge is trying to come down at a, at a spot where it kind of makes sense. Um, you asked about kind of the last, you know, two or three prime ministers. If we go back to that period, 2016, we had Malcolm Turnbull in, in power in Australia. And he, I think he was a, a prime minister who was pretty good on the world stage. He was very confident. Um, he projected an image of Australia that was open, but not naive about its security. I think he probably got a pretty good balance of that idea of, we're, you know, we're, we're open for business, we're a rich country, but we're also not stupid. Then we moved on to, to Scott Morrison, who I think was a very domestic-focused prime minister. Um, and I think that, you know, I don't think I'm alone in thinking that his diplomacy was pretty bad. Um, he was pretty ham-fisted with China. You know, I think um, focused on national security to an extent that probably went a little bit too far. Now, arguably, you needed to overcorrect to kind of realign that conversation in Australia. But Mm -hmm. um, that was certainly his outlook. And now I think we're settling much more in a place of, um, you know, you you, want to work with your neighbourhood, you want to work with China, you want to work with partners around the world, but security, the world is changing and security has to be a bigger part of what we do going forward. Yeah, no, that's great, John. I... It was interesting. So about two years ago, I had the opportunity to go to the 2022 NATO summit. And at that NATO summit, Prime Minister Albanese was there and he was one of the four, what we think of as Asia Pacific countries. So Australia, New Zealand, Japan and South Korea, for the first time, these conglomeration of states sent their head of government to the NATO summit. Now they're kind of called the AP4. And I was really struck by something that that the the Australian prime minister said was, you know, the question of why does Australia care about security in Europe? And his point was the last time that Australia felt, uh, you know, an existential threat coming from Asia, it was a function of instability and changes in the balances of power in Europe. So that was a fascinating comment that he made. But I also appreciate what you said. You know, this is a prime minister who's very, very vocal and, uh, you know, does not pull any punches when it comes to domestic political issues. All you have to do is fo- uh, follow his feet on LinkedIn to see that he pushes as much in the international as he does in the domestic. And I, and I think that's really, really fascinating. Um, if, I, if I could for just a second, could you help our listeners kind of flesh out perhaps, you know, and I, when I think about crises, I think about geopolitical flashpoints. I mentioned just briefly Ukraine. How, how, is, how is Australia kind of thinking about long-term perspectives when it comes to issues like Ukraine. There's There's been discussions of whether or not Australia should have deployed naval vessels in support of the anti-Houthi operation uh, in the Bab el-Mendeb in the Red Sea. How, how does Australia kind of en- enter into its calculation of how it uses force and for what purposes? So I lost you halfway through that question. I just missed a bit, but I, I think you were talking generally about the NATO, why, what, what's our what's our kind of involvement in places like Ukraine and NATO, and why why do we have a a, a dog in that fight? I think was the question. Yes. Um, 
you know, I think you set it up well by by referring to to Albanese's comments when he said that the last time we had a problem, it was because of instability in Europe. Um, and, and you can you can kind of draw a line between the idea in Australia that um, we are very much part of the Western Hemisphere. Uh, we want to be seen as a good partner for c- countries that are, you know, culturally like us, uh, governmentally like us. Um, but we sit, we're the only one of those countries that sits in a region that is entirely not that. We are the only country in Asia that is European-ish. I, I say European-ish because, you know, we're, our demographics are fast changing, but we are still a fundamentally European country in an area that isn't. So, you know, I, I like to think of I like to think of why we care about things in, like, like Ukraine, take Ukraine. It's not because the world for Australia will fall apart overnight if Russia is allowed to do what it wants in Ukraine. It's the higher level interests of one, you know, a liberal world order that Australia has benefited hugely from. Um, But secondly, it's what that kind of signal, us saying we don't care about it or us saying it's not in our backyard, it's so we don't care about it. It's what that would signal to China on Taiwan. Uh, to perhaps China in the Pacific, to Indonesia in the Pacific, to all these countries that are not the same as us, that we work hard to have good relations with, what us kind of abandoning or not caring about our principles a long way away from home would say about what we're going to do um, when they when they do what they want in our, in our backyard. So is is it feasible that we could say, listen, we don't have a dog in the fight when Russia invades Ukraine, but we really care about when China invades Taiwan? It is like that could happen, but it, you just lose your credibility, right? You lose your credibility with your partners and you lose your credibility with the region as well. So I think that's the kind of fundamental reason why we care about it. But the tension has always been for Australia to not over-index on these kinds of things. Um, right. Another big thing that's going on in the world right now that Australia ostensibly, it doesn't look like Australia should be involved in, but we kind of are, is the crisis in Gaza, the Israeli military action in Gaza. Um, It's a good example of, at a high level, Australia cares about, um, you know, Middle Eastern security, Middle Eastern peace. We care about terrorism. We care about Palestinian statehood. I think we're on the record as saying that we think that's the path forward. So we care at a high level about these global issues. But that issue is really important in our backyard too because Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. So we naturally pair with the West, Israel, US, Europe. But we have to be very careful there because if we go too far, if we are seen to be supporting Israel as it, you know, destroys Gaza, then we're going to have issues right on our doorstep. So it's always this tension of seeing the world at a high level about what benefits us, but then also filtering it through our region and being like, okay, well, this is our interest in this particular one. No, that's great. And, and John, if, if you don't mind, uh, you, you mentioned Indonesia, and I know there's a lot of great things that we can get to. Uh, we, like Ian, we had an opportunity to partner with International Intrigue to kind of do a little bit of a deep dive ahead of the election. Uh, Indonesia is one of many countries that's having very, very important elections this year in 2024. I think I saw the statistic that something like almost 49% of the world's population technically would have the ability to vote in an election of consequence. Taiwan had an election recently. Obviously, we have our presidential election coming up. Ukraine is supposed to have an election. India is supposed to have an election. Mexico is going to have a very, very important election. 
But I, I want to go back to a country that's very, very obviously proximate to you, and one that has a very, very unique role in some opportunities and challenges as well, um, and that's Indonesia. So if, if you don't mind, maybe we can talk a little bit about Indonesia as a nation, Indonesia's relations with Australia and vice versa, and kind of where it fits and how it's trying to navigate this complex landscape that we have kind of described and trying to characterizing the international relations environment of the world right now. Yeah, let me take a moment just to say that I was super proud of that piece that we collaborated on um, on the Indonesian election, uh, and I, I would commend it to all folks listening to, to go and give it a read. It's It was designed to be sort of a primer on what you need to know about Indonesia and the candidates. I think just about an hour ago, I saw news that uh, Prabowo, um, the sort of front runner, I think in our primer, we kind of said he almost certainly will be president. I think he's claimed victory now. So the, mm -hmm. the, the piece that we put out will help folks, I think, contextualize what just happened. Um, but I think it was a great piece and everyone should read it. <laughs> um, so we started off that that piece by kind of wondering why Indonesia doesn't get more airplay in these kinds of conversations um, in, mm -hmm. in the Western geopolitical kind of chin stroking. Indonesia does get glossed over a lot. Um, fourth largest population in the world, as I said before, the largest Muslim country in the world, um, a rapidly growing economy. I think we said that they're going to be about the sixth or seventh largest in the world pretty soon by the, yeah. the late 2020s. So it's just this country that really ought to be way more talked about. If you think about how much we talk about, you know, Egypt or or any of these other countries, it's kind of remarkable we don't talk about Indonesia. Anyway, um, Australia has always been a little bit different than that though because it is a, i think there are parts of indonesia that are about 40 minutes from from the north end of australia so they are very much our closest neighbor you know png mm -hmm. i guess as well but that that whole peninsula is really close to us um and as i've said before culturally very different we we have not a lot in common with indonesians so we've always trying to be working to sort of bridge those gaps. And we've had our issues with them, obviously East, East Timorese independence when we sent peacekeeping forces to East Timor in the early 2000s, that was a big problem for Australia-Indonesia relations. Um, so yeah, so that, that's the kind of context of Indonesia. But I think we wrote in, in the piece as well that Indonesia has always had a, an issue about how it sees itself. This is a, a, a very unique geographic country 17,000 islands, very difficult for it to project, for Jakarta to project power across all of its territory. Um, it's had a history of, um, you know, insurrections, terrorism. There was obviously the Bali bombings, uh, yeah. this kind of stuff. So it, it's a really interesting fragmented country. And I think the fact that it is fragmented has meant that it's more focused on itself and keeping its show on the road than it has been about projecting its power in its region. Um, and I guess that's a good thing <laughs> for its closest neighbor that it's more focused inwards than outwards. Uh, but I, I, I'm not sure that that will be true forever. So uh, again, I think Jokowi, the, the president who's outgoing um, in October this year, uh, over the last 10 years, he's done remarkable things in developing the country. I don't think he's changed the way they see their region. They're, they're, again, they're very kind of introspective. They're very slowly, slowly does it. Um, but Indonesia within five or 10 years will be one of the most important 
powerful economies on the planet. And um, I think the way the way their foreign policy is right now, that that kind of has to change, I think. So I, I think the question is, how will it change and when? Mm-hmm. You know, if I can add to that, um, I think in the piece, we have a quote from where the, the previous uh, leader at, in hosting. So Indonesia hosted the G20 uh, recently, I believe in 2022. And the war in Ukraine had been ongoing for about eight months. And the previous president said, you know, it's very, very important that the world does not descend into competing geopolitical blocks, which is, of course, is what's happening. And and to your point of, you know, how how does Indonesia try to navigate this? Because what has what has been kind of their dominant kind of driving strategic imperative when it comes to their international relations with other great powers? Well, I mean, it's, it's, I'm not, so first let me say, I'm not an Indonesia expert. So everyone needs to take this kind of stuff with a bit of a grain of salt, but I think they've got a, they've got a complex colonial history. So there's that element of it. Um, I think you wrote in our piece that, uh, you know, they sit on some of the most important waterways in the world. So I think there's been an element of perhaps having this latent geopolitical power that they didn't feel they needed to exercise because it wasn't a function of them being really, really great operators on the world stage. It was a function of their geography. A geography. So I think perhaps with world powers, they've just been kind of happy to sort of, you know, keep everyone on side-ish, not pick sides. As I said, look inward and just kind of keep the status quo because I think there's a sense that they, if they wanted to become more powerful, they could pretty much overnight, given all the things we just discussed, their geopolitical mm-hmm. positioning, their their demographics, their economic power. Um, but I think, I think, as I said, I think, I think in the next, maybe I don't want to put a time limit on it, but let's say a decade, I think they're going to be forced to make some big decisions. I think China is going to push their hand on South China. I mean, there's already a South China Sea, um, territorial overlap with, um, China, which I think Indonesia has been incredibly careful in managing. They've acted like it's not a big deal. Um, you know, they've taken the opposite approach to the Philippines, I think, on that. Um, but there's also the Taiwan situation that, you know, Indonesia has a very vested interest in not seeing Chinese adventurism outside its borders, because, again, Indonesia is not that far away from China. So I think there's just going to be a, a bunch of things that, and, and I think you again wrote that if if there is a war in Taiwan, Indonesia is going to have some decisions that they can't sit on the fence about. Do they close down their waterways and not allow transit to military ships or do they allow transit to military ships? Either one of those is a positive political decision that they're going to have to manage. Um, and I don't think they've had a great lot of experience doing that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I honestly don't have a sense of how they'll manage it. I know that Australia in our relationship with Indonesia, we're pushing forward a defense partnership with them that I think the prime minister said late last year or earlier this year, is close, um, and that's the kind of defense partnership that I think is going to be potentially treaty level. So that kind of tips Indonesia's hand a little bit in how they would react in those situations. Um, but yeah, it's a big unknown. I'm not yeah. sure if that answers your question, though. No, 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 it does. I, I think it gets to it gets to this kind of broader theme of of navigating uh, nation states, kind of navigating the, the unfamiliar. Right, we're we're kind of in a in a new space, and, and what we call this, we we don't know. And I think also just that that the context you started we started off with saying that like for thirty odd years countries haven't been pushed to make big decisions they've been allowed to have their cake and eat it too and I think when we talk about 
the international environment being more regional, more fragmented, there's going to be a, a lot more events, a lot more actions from other players that force other countries to make a decision that kind of goes one way or the other. I think that's what is going to happen to Indonesia in the next little while. No, that's fascinating. It, it, one of the things that I think is interesting too, John, if I can just point out a attention, it seems to be from our research, and I think that we discussed this in, in our mutual product, that Indonesia prefers to use existing mechanisms that have a regional focus to deal with issues. ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, as one example. And that there's a little bit of skepticism when new security arrangements come to the fore. I think the one that, that has really gathered a lot of attention from people such as myself, others who were in the defense world and now are in uh, kind of both uh, academic but also policy settings has been what's, what's referred to as the AUKUS Treaty, the Australia-UK-US Treaty. If, if it's okay, it, and I think it's important for our, our uh, listeners to kind of understand this, could we just talk a little bit about kind of the genesis of AUKUS? This is something that has gone from one administration, carried over from one administration to another. But it's also starting to create a, a really interesting series of actions and reactions from countries in the region to include New Zealand, which maybe we'll get to in a second. But could we just talk a little bit about AUKUS from an Australia perspective, its driving imperative, um, how it has been socialized with the domestic audience? There's a lot of money involved. Um, and kind of your kind of take on it. Yeah. Uh, so AUKUS is the Australia, UK, US uh, I mean, I guess, I guess it's a defense agreement, but it's just, the, the core of it really is, or at least the bit that is easy to understand um, at a high level is the transfer of nuclear technology um, and the building of nuclear powered subs, not nuclear armed, to be very clear. I think that's a distinction that sometimes gets missed, but nuclear powered right. submarines for Australia, UK and the US have that technology. I think we're taking the US technology um, and, and the fundamental part of that is that our submarines are conventionally powered now, which has all those limitations on range and, and days at sea and all that kind of stuff. Nuclear power submarines will allow Australia to project its power and, you know, by extension, US Western power um, from a, you know, from Australia, which is a, a very close Asian base, if you want to put, see it that way, through Indonesia up into the South China Sea and around the region. So fundamentally what it changes about the defence posture of Australia is just our ability to kind of be at sea for longer, be in places that people don't know because they're much harder to detect and be able to project our power a lot further. And it's not even power, it's kind of sea denial, right? It's the ability to say credibly that Australian subs might be in the Taiwan Strait. Right. Not it, sure if it, they will be, but maybe they will be. That's that's the kind of the the kind of dynamic of it. Um, but but broader than that, I think AUKUS. Another thing that kind of doesn't get picked up in the headlines. AUKUS is really military coordination. It's to to do something as complicated as transfer nuclear technology, nuclear power technology to Australia to give us the ability to. I think that the idea is that we will build our own nuclear power subs in the future. Um, you have to have a level of interoperability between militaries, navies, but militaries um, that we don't have yet. We have pretty good interoperability with US forces and UK forces through 25 years of fighting forever wars, but it's been pretty limited. This will take it to another level. It will take it 
to basically, you know, I don't want to say being the same militaries, but being able to operate when needed as almost a, a joint military. So I think that's the kind of fundamental thing that AUKUS has done. Um, the reactions in the region, you know, I don't think they were massively surprising. I think Indonesia is wary of it for obvious region, reasons. Like we would be wary if Indonesia developed a huge game-changing technology like that. Um, even if we don't think they're going to use it against us, it's just a a thing that your neighbor getting is, is not necessarily going to be in your interests. Um, and I think they think, Indonesia thinks, and probably Southeast Asian countries think, it's potentially destabilizing and another step down the path to a major conflict in the region. Um, I think they probably interpret it as, well, China's on its march to be the power in the region. It's, you know, building ships and submarines and rockets like really we've never seen in history before. The idea that Australia, a small country population-wise, but a middle power is getting this kind of technology makes the idea that a giant conflict is going to be more likely. I don't necessarily think that's true, but I think that's how it's kind of interpreted. Right. That's the perception. Oh, and, and you, you know, and interesting, you asked, just to tap back. Yeah, you are sorry about how it's been sold in Australia. I, I forgot that whole bit, which is pretty important because I think, um, you know, I think, well, I think fundamentally a lot of Australians don't think this changes much. Um, yeah. I don't, we had submarines. We had a policy of sea denial, particularly across our northern northern waters but you know i think they most australians kind of it's a pretty easy sell to to say that we're going to have better submarines there was a little bit of pushback in the early days of of the announcement about us tying ourselves so closely to the us um but you know i think i think the policy debates in australia that never are about should we align ourselves with the us it's always about how closely so it's mm -hmm. kind of a bit of a handbags at 10 bases kind of argument. It's like, no, we should be a little bit further away. No, we should be a little bit closer. It's no one really disagrees that we will be a Western power if that conflict ever comes. So I don't think it was a hard sell in Australia. I think the biggest fallout was the fact that the previous Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, handled the relationship with the French so poorly because the, the background to that is that we had to rip up a contract to buy conventionally powered French-made submarines um, and he didn't tell... Macron before he did that and the French foreign minister had an absolute meltdown. Um, I think most people in, in my industry knew that it would be a storm in a teacup and it would blow over. It's already blown over now. Mm -hmm. But I think that was probably the biggest fallout from it is that it was a diplomatic disaster vis-a-vis um, -vis Australia and France. <laughs> yes. Well, well, President Macron came to the United States and, and got an audience with President Biden fairly quickly. Uh, it, and, and not that we have to dwell on it too much, but I do think it's important for our listeners to understand that France sees a significant role for itself in the Indo-Pacific. In fact, President Macron has actually said France is an Indo-Pacific power. It's the first European country to come up with an Indo-Pacific strategy. And the bulk of their exclusive economic zone globally is a function of all the territories and islands that they own in the region. So, so that dynamic is is really interesting. And, and, to, and to comment too, John, on your our earlier discussion of Indonesia, you know, the ability of the of the Australians to project this submarine power, or the United States to project its building military capability in the Northern Territories and on the West Coast of Australia, that all would have to go through Indonesian airspace and territorial waters to get to the South China Sea, to respond to a Taiwan contingency. And as you just mentioned a few minutes ago, 
this is one of those interesting kind of drivers where people will have to, nations are going to have to make a decision. I, th I think another, another country, John, that I think is starting to maybe confront that threshold is New Zealand. Um, early on, New Zealand, so New Zealand is a U.S. ally, as is Australia. Uh, but for many, many reasons, one of them being the fact that New Zealand does not believe in nuclear weapons um, and is averse to forms of nuclear power. When AUKUS was first announced, there was very little political appetite coming from New Zealand at all of doing anything with AUKUS. But just in the last two weeks, we've seen significant overtures, particularly about the second pillar of AUKUS, which is not about nuclear submarines, but is about other defense technologies like quantum, AI, uh, hypersonics. It, it, if, if you can, could, could we talk maybe briefly and maybe we contrast the approach that Australia has been taking as it navigates this new terrain to where maybe New Zealand was and maybe now that we've had a change of government there recently, where it could be going. Yeah, so I think you put your finger on the, the fundamental changes in New Zealand is that for the first time in a while, they've now got a conservative government again um, after, I don't want to say how long, but I think, eh, you know, a good period. I think it's probably seven or eight years of Labor of, of sort of center left government. Don't quote me on that, but a, a long enough period for for it to be a major change in New Zealand. Um, look, I think I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but uh, <laughs> New Zealand has always liked to have an independent, an independent, and I'm using inverted commas there, an independent foreign policy because it sees itself as. Um, you know, independent of Australia, it doesn't. We have a great relationship within with it with New Zealand, of course. Culturally, we're very similar people, um, but it always likes to kind of put a bit of distance between Australia. Maybe, maybe in the same way that Canada and the US kind of have that relationship of, hey, yeah. we don't just do what you guys do because you're bigger than us. Um, but fundamentally, I think, and again, I'm not a New Zealander, so I don't, I don't mean to be too rude, but I think New Zealand's interests are the same as Australia's. They they want the same things that Australia wants. Um, and, you know, unless Australia is making a huge mistake, it will be in the national interest for New Zealand to do what Australia does. You, you've mentioned, I think, that the key difference between why we signed up for AUKUS and why they couldn't, or, you know, I don't know that they were invited, but they wouldn't have been able to anyway, is that nuclear ban. They have a very, very, very strong principle opposition to anything nuclear since, you know, again, I think dating back to the days when they denied um, access to, it was US military, uh, was it a submarine? I don't remember, but it was the whole Rainbow Warrior stuff in the late 80s, early 90s, I think, that New Zealand denied um, access to warships to their harbours because they were nuclear powered or nuclear armed or something like that. Um, and and since then, they've been really, really strong on that. So they, they wouldn't have been able to join up to anything that was nuclear based. But as I said before, I think AUKUS is more than that. It's about military coordination. It's about sharing technologies. You mentioned it, quantum, um, this kind of stuff. And I think New Zealand realizes, or at least the conservative side of New Zealand politics realizes that um, if they aren't a part of it, they really risk being seen as a bit of a weak um, target in the region, something that maybe would be more vulnerable if China were to establish a foothold in the Pacific, um, and that the upside of them not being involved is kind of principled and rhetorical. So if they can kind of get around the fact, okay, we don't want to be part of the nuclear side of things, but it seems 
to cut their nose off to spite their face if they're not involved in the broader AUKUS collaborations. Now, a New Zealander or an expert on New Zealand politics might tell me that that's not the case with the New Zealand public and that when a centre-left government comes back that they will pull themselves out of AUKUS or they'll, they'll scupper plans. I, I'm not sure about how the New Zealand public really feel about this stuff, but my sense is that they were always going to come to this position. They just need to go through their own processes of maintaining their independence and, and picking and choosing what they like and don't like. No. No, I, I, I think, you know, that point that you said of, of needing to kind of have that discussion of inconvenient truth when it comes to politics and economics, every country will have to have that on their own accord. And you mentioned Canada, you know, right now, after many, many years, there are those who are kind of pushing the true government to kind of to really confront issues uh, 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 of issues of uh, in their domestic politics as it relates to potential Chinese meddling or issues where, where Canada can you know, may be harder for them, like Indonesia, to try to navigate things in such a space where they have that kind of separation, but and have that strategic freedom of movement and, and not needing to invest in defense. But, but now that's kind of coming back around uh, well, as well. Yeah, I think you put your finger exactly on it. It's that theme that countries that have no experience in being forced to make tough decisions are increasingly being forced to make tough decisions. Uh, you mentioned Canada there. When I was in China, we did a ton, like the Australians did a ton of work with our Canadian counterparts um, on what Chinese influence operations in your country looks like because Australia had had experience with Chinese influence operations in Sydney and Canada was just getting to grips with this in Vancouver. And it was, mm-hmm. I, I know that a lot of my colleagues were dealing with this too. And it was, it was really eye-opening to see their level of Canadians, forgive me, but naivete around the idea that China wasn't just spending money in Vancouver because they had lots of it and they wanted to spread the wealth. I think it's, you know, Indonesia is going to have to make some choices. Canada is starting to realize that it's making having to make some choices. But New Zealand, you know, New Zealand profits, again, New Zealanders might get angry with me, but they profit from their geographical position of being behind Australia um, from a defense perspective and from being so small that no one's forced them to kind of take a side. They were able to coast through the period of Chinese kind of aggression against Australia by just saying, oh, we don't have any issues with China. And they avoided the largely avoided the economic coercion from China that Australia suffered. But mm-hmm. in the next 10, 20, 30 years, I, I don't think they're going to be able to coast through having it both ways. And that, And that's kind of the theme of this discussion, right, is hard choices are going to have to be made by almost everyone. Yeah. Well, when it comes to those hard choices, John, one of the things that I kind of wanted to have the opportunity to discuss, International Intrigue did a great end of year kind of preview of 2024, where uh, the the, in, the International in, the 2024 bingo card. <laughs> and uh, I just wondered if, if we could, if you could just kind of, and, and I direct all of our listeners to have the opportunity to have a look at it if they haven't, if you could just kind of talk to us a little bit about the genesis of kind of that product and then maybe we can at, at your discretion maybe we can do a few deep dives before uh the close of our discussion on some of the more salient issues that you think are maybe underappreciated now but are really really going to matter for this very ambiguous international security uh world going forward yeah yeah happy to uh so yeah the genesis of that that project is really just to kind of have a bit of fun at the end of the year at the start of the year to kind of cast our eyes forward or our minds forward to what might happen in, in, in the year ahead. And, you know, 
if, if folks go ahead and read it, some of those things are a little bit tongue in cheek. They're, they're, you know, we're not, there's certainly no, uh, uh, I guess, likelihood attached to these things. They're just kind of like, how do we think outside the box a little bit to, to what, to what's possible, you know, not to get into a sort of too big a digression, but I think one of the things that infects Western foreign policy thinkers brains is that the way it's been is how the way it will always be. So this idea that a major global war isn't possible because it hasn't happened in my lifetime, my parents' lifetime, and sort of only just in some grandparents' lifetime, we've had a world war. So like, it's not really in people's memories. So we like to kind of do these thought experiments about like, oh, actually, these things could possibly happen. Um, so that, that's the genesis of it. It's just a bit of a fun kind of thinking exercise with some serious kind of predictions in there as well. Um, and, and I think it's also useful as a, you know, we're not necessarily consultants or analysts in the way that, uh, you know, Stratfor or, you know, any of these kinds of folks are where it's like really thinking this through down to the business level, but it is always useful in any kind of, um, industry where your job is about predicting and mitigating or predicting and understanding and analyzing to just think about what's coming up ahead. Otherwise you get, you know, headline this headline that, um, you kind of miss the forest for the trees. So it's a, it's an, it's an, it's an idea just to get our readers thinking ahead. Um, and we, we broke it down into a bingo card just cause <laughs> I'm getting pretty sick of hearing people say, Oh, I didn't have that on my bingo card. It's like, well, maybe, maybe you should have, cause we, we, we wrote about it. <laughs> That's great. Well, well, and, and I like how you bend the bingo card by both regional and, and thematic issues. Um, it, you know, one of the things that, that we're working on in, in the next month or so is a, is a dissection of this debate of, quote unquote, peak China. And for our listeners who haven't heard about this, this idea whether or not the forecast of China overtaking the United States from a GDP and power perspective that maybe that may not happen because of economic challenges. And then in fact, maybe the directions and things are going in another direction. Um, I know we've talked a lot about China today, but as as we all know, a country's foreign policy is a function of its domestic political and economic strength. For, for our uh, reader or listeners, what are some things that you kind of commented on in the bingo card or in addition to other work that uh, Intrigue has done on kind of challenges that China has now to, to its economic and by extension, its political model? Well, I mean, China's China's economy is. Uh, I mean, f- fundamentally, these things are narratives. I think we talk about sweeping trends or peak China or China's in trouble. They are kind of um, heuristics or or kind of just ways that we can have a discussion in five ten minutes that 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 makes sense. I, I don't necessarily think they get the complexity of what's going on in China. So that's the first thing to note. I, so I, I don't really believe in peak China or that China's on the way out. I, I would say that it's it's going through some serious economic troubles right now, things mm-hmm. that I think anyone who's worked in China or focused on Chinese Chinese economics has ha, would say has been coming for a long time. Um, you know, I think everyone was kind of always waiting for something like this to happen. And then the big question wasn't, if it was when and then how the Communist Party would react to what was going on. And I'm talking here about things like a massively over leveraged real estate industry. A, um, I, I, I think I think something un, that's a little bit underplayed is the, the sort of lack of consumer confidence that the average Chinese consumer yes. has in, in their government and in their economic model. Um, and even in that, you can pull out a thousand different reasons for that. Is it because 
they think that there's going to be a war soon or is it because they don't like the Communist Party or is it a corruption issue? Like there's just so many different reasons for all of this that I don't think I can, I'm certainly not qualified to say, oh, it's because of this. But what I do think if we draw back out is that Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, obviously got an unprecedented or largely unprecedented third term at the top of the Communist Party uh, in 2022, October 2022, get my dates right. Um, and what we can say about his leadership is that it's been, he's reversed the trend of Chinese confidence and in, in its kind of joining the world stage into China has to go it alone to remake the world. I have no idea if he's going to be successful. Um, I think that's a narrative question again, because if you'd asked me that four years ago, I think the world would have said, oh, China's going to overtake America. They're, they're such long-term thinkers. They're so much smarter than the rest of us. Now the narrative is, oh, nope, told you, peak China. They're, they're on the way down. They didn't even get close. Um, mm -hmm. What I would say is I think it's the biggest challenge to Xi Jinping's political uh, power internally in China that he's had. Um, he had a he, he's had a bunch. He's had a few corruption challenges. He's had obviously coming to power as a giant challenge, but this I think is the first time that since he solidified his power, there are going to be powerful voices internally in China saying, uh, "We're not so sure. We're not so sure about his choices. We're not so sure that he's been good for the country." We'll never know about those things. I don't know how that's going to play out. We won't know if it's happening or if it's not happening until it happens. But I think that's how we kind of think about what's going on in China right now. And in, in, our, um, in, our, in our bingo card, I think we said that Xi Jinping will face the largest internal threat to his position. Um, you know, we, yeah, I, I, I don't have much more to say about that because anybody who says they know what's going on inside the Communist Party politically in China is lying to you because uh, no one knows. Nikkei, Nikkei uh, newspaper in Japan always comes out every other week with some salacious rumours from inside the Communist Party. <laughs> I can guarantee they don't have high-placed sources. Um, <laughs> right. Maybe the CIA does, maybe maybe some other some other spy agencies do, but, yeah, no one knows is, is I guess, what, what I'm going to say. So, yeah, how, well, just to finish, I know I'm rambling a bit. I, I would say what we should look for in 2024 to kind of think about that question about whether Xi Jinping's grip on power is is absolute is will we see more purges of key officials? Um, so far, I think the economic decision makers, policymakers in Beijing have been kept in place. But if we see some of those start to fall or another senior position start to fall, then we might reasonably assume that he's being challenged and won that challenge. Um, and if things just kind of coast along, I, you know, I don't, I, it's hard to predict, but I, I wonder how long China can, can feel like this before there's something that happens. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating, China. And <laughs> Sorry, long-winded answer. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 it's highly complex. We could, we could dedicate it an entire se podcast series on these issues. I, uh, I, I know that I noticed that, you know, we've spent, and, and this is probably my, a sin of commission on my part. We spent a lot of time talking about great powers, what I call consequential powers like Australia, France, the UK. Um, but I did notice too that in your bingo card, you compare and contrast kind of the economic and political direction of Latin America vis-a-vis -vis Africa. Um, and I just wondered if you could kind of comment on that and, 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 and you know, kind of before we do so, one of the things that's, that's been a driving narrative, as you know, here in the United States is part of de-risking is onshoring and nearshoring 
value chains. And a lot of times the argument of that is focused on reorienting these things in Latin America. So there tends to be a drive towards that, but, but you kind of have a, a slightly different outlook for Latin America vis-a-vis -vis Africa kind of on these things and, and just ensuring that we, we try to span the world as much as we can in our conversation today. Um, could you kind of just talk through for our audience kind of how you've conceptualized these two macro regions, which are both highly diverse, right? We get that. But, but, but some of the high points that you identified in the 2024 bingo card product. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would say that to start off with, we kind, we, we kind of were being a little bit contrarian there for, for thought provoking sake. Um, you know, I think we said Africa is going to flex its economic potential. Well, to do that, it has to overcome what third, how many coups have there been in the sub-Saharan Africa over the last, you know, 18 months? And At least know, 12, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So all of that stuff is a huge impediment to what we are saying, which is, you know, Africa's finally going to to make make good on its huge and, and, and long-lasting economic potential. But I think what we're seeing, what we're trying to, what we were trying to kind of focus on in Africa is that we've got, we've got a few friends working in, in different industries in Africa. Um, there does feel like there's a vibrancy and a youth and a, and a modern economy feel to Africa. There are a lot mm. of startups coming out of there, particularly in digital payments and, and consumer goods and these kinds of things that strike us. And this is super general. And someone who's an expert on this will be like, yeah, but X, Y, Z is why you're wrong. And I fully understand that. But it feels like there's an excitement in Africa from people on the ground around its future. And I think that's a really underrated metric for when you think about the youth and young people and what they're investing their time into uh, and how they see their future. And I, and I think it does feel like they're optimistic, at least about what they can do in Africa. Now that, that, so I think we said, you know, Africa is going to produce some tech unicorns. I think that's, you know, almost certainly going to happen just because of the size of the market. Um, yeah. And I think we also said that Africa is kind of looking to start stand on its own two feet a little bit with like a credit ratings agency and, and kind of thinking about cryptocurrency, this idea that they can kind of go it alone. It strikes me as optimistic from them, huge political, uh, cultural, all the rest of it problems. LATAM, on the other hand, and again, I think the conventional wisdom is the opposite. It's that LATAM is going to finally step up to its potential because of, as you said, the nearshoring stuff, um, you know, the, 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 the move away from globalization. I don't like to see, say, deglobalization. We touched mm -hmm. on that earlier, but like the move away from kind of pushing towards globalization will benefit countries that are closer to America. Um, and obviously, Brazil has its own center of gravity as a giant country. I think what we're perhaps unfairly conversely to Africa, I look at Latin America's kind of negativity and its political kind of outlook. And I, I'm really interested in Argentina. We, we put in Argentina as I think we said, you know, yeah. uh, Malay's kind of takeover of the economy will make things worse in the short term. But I think that's the first time. And again, I'm not a LATAM ex expert, so that needs to be said, but it's kind of the first time that I have felt any optimism about what's possible in a major South, Af uh, sorry, South American country. Obviously, Argentina has been a basket case for a long time, but maybe this in the medium term really turns it around to be the country that we've all know Argentina could be. But on the yes. other hand, does anyone think that about Brazil right now? Does anyone think Brazil's going to, I, th I think people think, oh, good, it's going to stop some of the crazier policies of Bolsonaro when it comes to environment and, and these kind of things. But I think it's business as usual in terms of corruption and, and underperforming its economic potential, right? 
Um, and, and the same arguably could be said for Mexico. So I just think the idea that we had of LATAM was not that it, the place is doomed, but just that it's going to continue what it's been doing for a while, which is, I think, underperforming its potential, um, largely for political reasons. Um, but, you know, again, it was largely contrarian, and I'm, and I'm sure that in a couple of years we'll play this back and LATAM's figured itself out and it's, you know, set, set itself up as a manufacturing colossus and, we'll, you know, I'll look very stupid, but yeah. <laughs> No, no. Well, I, I appreciate that, John. And, and it's been a, a fascinating conversation. And uh, we're, we were, you know, on, on behalf of uh, Likian and our subscribers, we're really, really grateful uh, to have you. Be, before we wrap up, for those listeners who want to know more about international intrigue, what's, what's the best way that they can kind of access uh, your products in your newsletter? Yeah. So, I mean, the easiest way is is to go to our website, which is internationalintrigue.io. Uh, or if you just Google International Intrigue, we'll come up. Um, our website has, you know, you can sign up for our newsletter there. You can can read our work. Um, we're across the socials as well. But, you know, International Intrigue is, it's pretty, it's a unique uh, a unique name. So if you Google it, you should be fine. Um, and we're, we're, we're set up for a big 2024. Um, we've just raised some financing late last year. So we're, we're going to move quickly into new products and, and we're excited. So uh, would commend everybody to, to jump on the train. And hopefully, Scott, we're going to be doing some more things with, with Lycaon and, and you guys um, collaborating because I thought it was a, a super, a super good first uh, foray into collaboration. Great. Well, John, thank you so much uh, uh, for this great conversation. We could continue to go on and on and we would love to have you back on as a guest. Thank you for helping us all kind of navigate these truly uncertain waters. And uh, John, I'll, I'll give you the last word. Thanks, Scott. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, I'm, always, I'm always happy to jump back on. If people need more vibe checks from around the world, <laughs> always happy to pro provide them. Thanks so much. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much, John. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to the latest iteration of the Geopolitics and Commodities podcast. I'm your host, Scott Smithson. Until next time, have a great day.